How's everybody doing? Good, good, good. It's good to see y'all. Good to be together today. If you're new to our church, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to McLean Bible Church. I want to welcome those of you who are watching from all of our different locations around the D.C. metro area, as well as those of you uh, watching uh, online. We're going to be jumping into James chapter 5, and so go ahead and meet me there. Uh, But before we uh, get there, I do want to thank everybody that came out uh, to the pastoral installation service a couple weeks ago. Uh, It was a really sweet time of, uh, well, obviously for me personally, but also I think for our church of just worshiping the Lord and celebrating God's grace in the life uh, of our church. I think we got a picture here that was really sweet uh, of uh, the elders and pastors from, uh, from NBC as well as from other local churches praying over me and my family. Uh, it was a sacred moment. Uh, and as you'll see in this next picture, the sacredness of the moment did not keep my youngest son uh, from being on joke time uh, at all times. In the middle of the presence of God, he's looking up at my dad, actually, uh, and, uh, and, and smiling. And in case you're wondering, he has on jeans, and that's because I was responsible for bringing the kids' dress clothes here to the Tyson so they could change before the service, because it was a long day going from Moco straight to here, and I forgot to pack his suit pants, which is funny, but even more funny when you realize the fact that when I officiated my first wedding as a pastor here back in 2007, it was a wedding in North Carolina, I also forgot my own suit pants. And officiated my first wedding in jeans. So there, there you have it. Uh, it was a full circle uh, moment. Uh, it was a, a really sweet time, and I'm just honored. I've been honored to serve our church uh, for all these years, and really honored and excited to serve our church uh, as one of the lead pastors. Uh, today, we're going to be finishing up our sermon series, The Beauty of Faith, where we've been walking through uh, the book of James. And so, like I said, you can meet me in James chapter 5. We're going to study the last section of James's letter in chapter 5, verse 13 to 20. But before we dive into that, I want to share with you something that happened on uh, April 28th. It was one of the most unforgettable moments in my life and and certainly this year. I actually shared this story in the end of year giving letter that I sent out last week. Um, And if you want to invest in what God is doing in and through our church, I hope you'll prayerfully consider giving above and beyond your normal giving this month um, so that we can finish out uh, the fiscal year and expand our ministry efforts in 2024. Uh, But for those of you that didn't get that letter or haven't read it yet, um, let me me share this story with you because it illustrates, I think, in a beautiful way uh, what we're getting ready to study in James chapter 5. So the night of April 28th, uh, right here actually at Tyson's, as some of you will remember this, Uh, We were in the middle of just a move of God in the life of our church. Uh, We were in the middle of these kind of spontaneous, impromptu prayer gatherings where we were just gathering every single night for just prayer meetings. And literally, y'all, we're talking like over a thousand people packing into the Smith Center here at the Tyson's building just to worship, just to pray. We didn't even really have a plan. We just had scripture. We had worship songs and we had people and we were just seeking the Lord in prayer. And so in the middle of that week, there was a time where... Uh, we were praying prayers of confession. And so I was on one side of the room with a microphone. Pastor David was on the other side of the room with a microphone. And there was a line of people that were lining up just to pray one sentence prayers of confession. And the very last person in that line was a man who walked up to me just completely broken and overwhelmed. 
And he, and I said this in the letter, he very gloriously broke the one sentence rule. He just starts going in and just pleading with God to free him from addiction to alcohol. And he's just literally crying out to God. And I remember, I'll never forget, I pray I'll never forget, and I journaled it so I won't forget, him just saying, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I want to I follow you, but I need your help, please. This is affecting different areas of my life, please. And he had been struggling to maintain sobriety. And so he's confessing, y'all, I'm telling you, people crying all over the room. And so he finishes his prayer. He says, amen. He's about to walk away. I stop him and I just encourage him briefly from James chapter 5, verse 16, which says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so I said, brother, we want to pray for you. And so I looked out at the congregation and I said, here's how we want to do it. We want to do this a little bit different. If you're in the room right now and you've ever struggled with any kind of addiction, but you've experienced God's freedom and deliverance in that area, I want to invite you to come down and let's circle around this brother and I want you to lay hands on him while we pray for him. And y'all, I got to be honest. Can I just be honest? I always ask y'all that. Can I be honest? I thought like five or six people were going to come down. Y'all, some of y'all were in the room. People started pouring down the aisles. Dozens of people saying, I've, I know what it's like to be in the, in the grip of addiction, and I also know what it's like to experience freedom in that area. And they circled around this brother and laid hands, and we prayed for him. And then after I said amen, David was like, we're not done yet. And he turned to the congregation, and he says, I know it's not just him. He said, listen, if you're here right now and you're currently struggling with any kind of addiction, I want you to come down front and we want to pray for you. And people start streaming down front to confess all kinds of sexual addictions, substance abuse, all kinds of different addictions. And here was the crazy part. Now, those people who had experienced freedom from addiction, because we can't pray, me and David can't pray for all these people, now they're praying for people who are currently struggling with addiction. And it was such a beautiful reminder to me that God is eager to move in powerful ways when we come before him with humility and holy expectation. And listen, that brother and his family are involved in a church group. He crossed the one-year mark of sobriety. Praise God. And I shared that in the letter that I sent out, and I shared that story in the 9 a.m. service. And then Dan came up to me, this brother came up to me after the 9 a.m. service, and he said, Mike, I need to share something with you. And he shared with me that he had a relapse. And here's the beautiful part of that story. Here's a man who's plugged into biblical community, who is fighting against this addiction and fighting to go back to that place. And he experienced that struggle again. Here's what happened. His wife, knowing that he was struggling and relapsing, called one of the elders of our church, Ken Tucker. Ken Tucker called Lucius Thompson, who's the director of security and congregational care. 
Lucius went and actually picked him up from the bar where he was having a relapse. And the reason why Dan came up to me after the 9 a.m. was not just to kind of correct the story, was because he wanted me to share that part of the story. That sometimes God can work in our life in a supernatural, in a powerful, in a very real way. And it doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect. It just means that he's with us. And when we fall, he's there to lift us back up so that we can walk in that freedom again. Amen. And so let me tell you up front how this sermon is going to end. At the end of this sermon, if you're in a season of physical or emotional suffering or you've been struggling in a pattern of sin or addiction, I'm going to invite you to come down front across all of our locations so that one of our pastors or one of our leaders can pray for you. Now, don't worry. We don't even have time. We're not giving you a microphone. We're not going to ask you to share anything publicly. We just want to pray for you one-on-one and ask God to work in your life. And if we're going to do that, I have to preach a shorter sermon. So let's get to it, all right? (laughs) We're going to look at James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. Let me read it. We'll pray, and then we'll dive in before we spend some time in prayer together. James chapter 5, verse 13 says this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray together. Father, as we give you are attention and we hear from you. Lord, we pray that you will not only speak through your word, but would you work through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring the sweet, transformative conviction of sin. That you would bring hope in the midst of our struggles and our suffering, God, that you, would, that you would increase our faith and our sense of expectation, give us a sense of holy expectation that under the authority of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit in community with other people, God, that you can do the miraculous according to your will. Father, we open our hearts, open our lives, we open this time to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 
Two things we see here in the passage, the privilege of prayer and the power of prayer. Let's look at the privilege of prayer. And here's what I mean by that. Prayer is the primary way we experience intimacy with God. And you see that right here. Think about what James says here, verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. In other words, let him or her bring their pain and petition to God in prayer. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Let him or her bring their joy and their gratitude to God in prayer. Here's what's happening. James is using an ancient kind of writing strategy here, and he's using the two extremes to, to represent the whole. So he's, he's taking both extremes of the human experience, and he's saying prayer should be our go-to response in every circumstance. Suffering, celebration, and everything in between. And this is what the Apostle Paul meant in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, when he said, pray without ceasing. Now, I remember growing up in church, some of you didn't grow up in church, but I remember growing up in church hearing that verse and really being, feeling, thinking like, that's kind of low-key impossible. It's kind of ridiculous, God. You know what I mean? Like, here, that verse doesn't mean don't do anything but pray. All right, Paul, who said this clearly, if you, as you read the New Testament, he did lots of things, sharing the gospel, preaching, teaching, all kinds of different things. This means prayer without ceasing means live your life in a posture of prayer, in a running dialogue with God. Think about it this way. You should begin a text thread with God every day. Now, think about your text threads, right? With your coworkers, with your friends, with your family members, right? You're, when, when you have a text thread, you're not literally texting them all day without stopping, hopefully, right? Let's pray for our, our teenagers, right? And some of us adults, right? When you're on a text thread like that, you're talking all day, but you're not literally texting in every moment. It's an open line of communication where you're constantly interacting and sharing with each other as you go throughout your day. And listen, that's how your relationship with God should be. Amen. Out of the overflow of intimacy and communion with your heavenly father, you should have an open line of communication with him all day. Like relationship with God means that we don't just come to him when we have a need, but that we want to come to him when we're happy, when we're sad, when we're anxious, when we're just processing something, when we just feel in our hearts a bubbling sense of gratitude and praise and we sing to him, hopefully not out loud, in your cubicle, at work, or in the library. Don't be weird like that, right? But we want to commune with God and we want to cultivate intimacy with him all throughout the day in every circumstance. That's the privilege of prayer. Why? Because prayer is primarily relational, not just transactional. Amen. We have a relationship with God. Yes. Now, some people use passages like this as an excuse for not pursuing a more disciplined prayer life. And they'll usually say something like this. Well, I talk to God all the time. So I don't need to set aside a specific time for prayer. My generation, kind of older millennials, right, we kind of laughed at quiet times, right? It's kind of corny, low-key legalistic, right? And so what we do is we pit spontaneous prayer against more structured prayer. But it's not either or. And the Bible actually 
doesn't commend that type of division at all. In fact, listen, we need more structured habits of prayer to help train our hearts to see and respond to God in more spontaneous moments of prayer. This is why it's important to set aside time every day to meditate on God's word and to respond to him in prayer. This is one of the reasons we start the year off as a church family with 21 days of prayer. It's our way of dedicating the new year to God and saying to him, God, we want to prioritize intimacy with you. God, as we start this year, we want to make ourselves available to whatever you want to do in us, whatever you want to do through us this year. And if that's how you want to start your year, then I encourage you to go to mcclainbible.org slash 21 days. You can do it right now on your phone, but don't get distracted, right? mcclainbible.org slash 21 days and sign up to get more information about how you can join us in setting aside a concentrated season of prayer before the Lord. So the privilege of prayer, that we get to experience intimacy with God in prayer, but also the power of prayer. The prayer is not only the primary way we experience intimacy with God, but it's the primary way that we access the power of God. Look at verse 14. It says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Now pause. The elders here isn't just a reference to older, more mature believers in the church. James is specifically talking about the men who have been appointed by the church to be pastoral overseers. He says, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over this person, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, this is something we practice here at NBC. A lot of people don't know this. We practice this here. People in our church can contact us as elders and receive prayer for healing. But let me clarify a few things in these verses. First, and this is going to be a lot. We're going to move through this quick. First, seems like James is referring to someone who is very seriously sick. That's probably why they have to call for the elders to come to them. And could also explain that phrase, pray over them, right? The picture in James's mind could be of a person who's physically unable to even get up. We don't know for sure, and we don't need to overthink this and be super literal about it, but I do think it's helpful to make a distinction between minor kind of everyday sickness, like we love y'all, but you don't have to hit us up for your seasonal allergies. Just get Claritin, you know what I'm saying? So we make a distinction between minor kind of everyday sickness and more serious, debilitating or life-threatening sickness. Because on a practical level, the elders of the church have limited time and availability and will need to prioritize the most serious situations, which raises a question. Why does a sick person even need to call for the elders to pray? Do elders have more spiritual power than normal Christians? Well, whenever you're reading the Bible and you have a question like that, first look at the immediate and surrounding context to see if it gives more clarity. So here's what we see right here in the passage. First of all, James just told people to pray for themselves in verse 13. If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray for himself. 
Secondly, down in verse 16, James tells us to pray for each other so that we can be healed. So it's not that the elders' prayers are more powerful than the prayers of normal Christians. There's something else going on here. And here's what's happening. James is revealing something about the way God designed us to live. God does not want us to suffer alone. In fact, as Christians, God wants us to be known, cared for, and vulnerable in and vulnerable with a local church family. And as spiritual fathers of the church family, the elders should be aware of and pray for the needs of the congregation. So the elders don't have more powerful prayers, but we do have a responsibility to pray for the members of the church, and in particular, to pray for those who are suffering from a severe illness. But that then raises another question. Why do they need to use oil? Now, we're a very diverse church, like ethnically, racially, culturally, and even in some ways, theologically. Some of us, you like, I already know, Pastor, I got my oil in my back pocket right now. I'm ready. <laughs> Hand on the trigger, ready. And some of us are like, what in the world? I've seen that on TV. It seems a little bit weird. So it's important to clarify a few things here. First of all, Scripture is very clear that we can pray for healing without using anointing oil. In fact, there's lots of examples of healing in the New Testament, but there's only one other time where anointing oil is mentioned in the context of healing, and it's in Mark chapter 6, verse 13. So there's nothing inherently magical or supernatural about anointing oil. Here's the second thing we got to clarify. The elders of the church are not spiritual healers in the way that many people and many cultures use that term. Spiritual healing is kind of a wave right now where there's people who claim that they can heal people by channeling healing energy. It's a whole lot of gullible, naive Christians that go to spiritual healers. But here's what you got to know. There's only two kinds of spiritual energy or spiritual power. There's power that comes from God, which is always connected to faith in Jesus, or there's demonic power that ultimately deceives, enslaves, and destroys. Listen, hear me, hear me. I don't care what your ancestors did. I don't care what the new spirituality trends are. Listen to me. If you dabble in spiritual practices, Outside of gospel-centered spirituality, you are opening the door and putting out a welcome mat for demonic activity in your life. So much more I want to say on that. We got to keep moving. Here's the third thing I don't want to clarify. I don't think this is a sacrament in the way that the Catholic Church teaches, where the oil itself becomes a means of forgiveness and healing as the priest uses it. So then what's the point of the anointing oil? Why do we do this? Well, throughout the Bible, anointing oil is used as a symbol that a person is being marked out for a special purpose from God. You remember in the Old Testament, especially, right, they would anoint kings and anoint priests as a way of setting them apart, of consecrating them for a special purpose from God. And so when the elders anoint a sick person during prayer, It's a beautiful 
tender, symbolic way of marking that person out and saying on, the, on behalf of the church, God, we're asking you to give this person special attention. Like, God, we're coming to you in the name of the Lord Jesus with the authority that Jesus gave us, the same Jesus that healed lepers and healed blindness and healed paralysis and cast out demons. We're coming to you in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we're asking you to intervene in this situation. Either supernaturally or through the gift of modern medicine, however you choose to do it, God, we're asking you to work. Which raises another question. Because in verse 15, James says, in the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. So here's the question. Does verse 15 mean that if we have enough faith, God will answer, always answer prayers for healing? And listen, that's an important question because there's a lot of people who take verse 15 as a divine guarantee that if we just have enough faith, God will definitely heal, that we can just declare healing and God is legally obligated to align his will to ours. Listen, there's so much way, so much I could say about that, but the short answer is this. No, God does not always answer our prayers for healing in the way that we want him to, even when we pray in faith. Say, Mike, how do you know that? Well, one is we know this from our own personal experience. One of the heroes, mentors of my life growing up just passed away last night from cancer. Lived on the street that I grew up on. My dad called at 10.30 last night because his family called and said he's not going to make it through the night. And my dad put his clothes on at 10.30 last night, he and my mom, and drove down to their house to comfort the family and to pray over him. And I got the text this morning that he's gone. We know in our own personal experience that God does not always Answer our prayers for healing in the ways that we want him to. And listen, when we believe that he does and he should and he will do that, and when we teach that false name and claim of theology, we not only set people up for deep emotional pain, but also for real spiritual damage. Because what do you do when God doesn't answer your prayer? That has to mean one of two things. Either you didn't have enough faith or this Bible is not real. We know it from our own personal experience, but we also know from Scripture that God doesn't always heal. And we see it most clearly in the Apostle Paul's life and ministry. You see it in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, where Paul is doing ministry and he had to leave a brother because he was ill. And then the clearest example is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul himself prays for healing for his own self three times. And God said, no, you're going to have to live with this weakness and my grace will be sufficient for you. God does not always answer our prayers for healing in the way that we want him to, even when we pray in faith. And so some people swing to the other side and say, well, then. This must mean that even if God doesn't heal a person in this life, James is saying that if they're a Christian, God will definitely heal that person in the life to come. And yes, that's true. 
Jesus is going to come back. We're going to receive glorified bodies. We're going to live forever in his eternal presence. And there will be no mourning. There will be no sickness. There will be no decay. There will be no death. We know that to be true. But that doesn't seem to be what James is talking about here. Because you don't need to pray for eternal healing. That's a guaranteed part of your salvation in Jesus. No, James is very clearly saying that we should pray for God to heal the sick in this life. So then what do we do with that promise in verse 15? Well, very simply, we pray. There's so much that I could say here theologically, but here's the point. This is very simple. Here's what we do with that promise in verse 15. We pray for God to heal. We pray with certainty that God can heal and with confidence that God will heal, but with humility before God and his mystery and sovereignty, recognizing that he sometimes chooses not to for reasons that we don't fully understand. But we would be fools to allow what we don't understand to cause us to live beneath the privilege and power that God has made available to us. So we pray. Now, those are all important questions and there's more we could dive into, but don't let all of that cause you to miss the main point of this passage. You don't even have to understand every little detail that I just explained. You can read this and and see the main point because it's clear. One thing is absolutely clear from this passage. Prayer changes things. I'm talking about real things in time and space. I'm talking about the type of prayer that can actually alter the course of history. It is divine power that God has made available to us when we, through Jesus, come before him in prayer. Listen, prayer is not just therapeutic. It's not just religious mindfulness or just a spiritual way of getting things off your chest. Yes, that's a part of the privilege of prayer, to pour out our hearts, our thoughts and concerns and needs before God. But listen, prayer is not just psychologically beneficial. Prayer is supernaturally powerful. Listen to how A.W. Tozer put it. He said, what profit is there in prayer? Much every way. Whatever God can do, faith can do. And whatever faith can do, prayer can do when it is offered in faith. An invitation to prayer is therefore an invitation to omnipotence, for prayer engages the omnipotent God and brings him into our human affairs. Nothing is impossible to the man who prays in faith, just as nothing is impossible with God. And then he ends with this. This generation has yet to prove all that prayer can do for believing men and women. We pray. We may not understand it all, But we pray. And I wonder sometimes if we really understood the power of prayer, would prayer gatherings even be more popular than Sunday worship services? Or maybe our Sunday worship services would turn more into prayer gatherings if we really understood the privilege that we have and the power that's available to us in prayer. Would we take it more seriously? Would we devote ourselves to it? More. God wants us to enjoy the privilege and to experience the power that he's made available to us in prayer. But James addresses two things that can hinder us from fully leaning into that and experiencing that. And I just want to 
share these two things briefly before we take some time together in prayer. Two things that can hinder us, our sin and our expectations. Our sin. Listen, James is clear here that our sin can affect our physical health. That's why James says, and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, I know some of y'all aren't Christians here, and you're not even sure you believe the Bible yet, and so you're like, you already lost me. You done talked about demons. Now you're talking about sin causing sickness. Like, what are we talking about here? Listen, listen. I, I get it. I understand. These are things that, that require faith for us to believe. But when you come under the lordship of Jesus, what it means is now for the rest of your life, you take his word for it, not your own. What it means is that if, if, if there really is a God who is infinite and beyond our finite understanding, that if this is a God that exists outside of time and space, that he's omnipotent and, and he, he has all power and he exists in eternity and he works in these ways, then wouldn't it be wise for us to believe his view of ultimate reality over our own view? And so we come to his word with humility and with childlike faith and trust. Not that we check our brains at the door, but we submit our intellect to what he has revealed in his word. And so here's what James says, and I want to make this clear. Sickness is not always caused by individual sin. But it can be sometimes. Our guilt and shame over our sin can manifest itself in all kinds of physical symptoms. But the Bible is also clear that sometimes God will use sickness to get our attention and show us our sin. It's how he disciplines and corrects us sometimes. The clearest example of this is in 1 Corinthians 11, where some people were getting sick and even dying because of their sin and hypocrisy during the Lord's Supper. So our sin can affect our physical health, but our sin can also affect our prayers. Look at what James says in verse 16. He says, the prayers of a what? Of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, some people interpret this as just referring to believers in general. And there's a sense in which that's true, because if you're a believer, you've been forgiven of your sin through Jesus's death and resurrection, and your status before God now is based on Jesus's righteousness, not your own. And yet, at the same time, God seems to be clear throughout Scripture that our practical righteousness, our lifestyle, does impact the effectiveness of our prayer life. It's all over the Bible. Let me just give you a couple quick examples. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. For our married couples, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Your prayers can be hindered by the way you treat your wife. We're not even talking about abuse. We're just talking about being sensitive and considerate. 
1 John 3.21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we re- whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. Listen, we cannot earn forgiveness and status before God because of our own righteousness that only comes through faith in the finished work of Jesus. We stand in his righteousness. But the Bible is clear that our obedience to God does have an impact on the effectiveness of our prayer lives. Listen, the prayers of a righteous person are powerful. And this doesn't mean a perfect person, but it does mean a person of integrity, A person who's genuinely committed to obeying God's word and bringing their life into alignment with his will. And so listen, your sin is not only offending God, but it is hindering your ability to fully experience God's blessing in your life. He wants more for you. And whenever you hide your sin, you give it more power in your life. And this is why God tells us to confess our sins to each other, not as a punishment, but as a cure. As a way of inviting us to open up those hidden areas of our lives so that we can experience the healing power of his grace through others. We confess our sin to God to receive forgiveness and mercy from him, but we confess our sins to one another so that God can bring healing into those hidden areas of our lives in concrete relationships. Listen, God isn't trying to embarrass you. God is trying to heal you and help you grow, and he can only heal who you are, not who you pretend to be. So this is one of the reasons we should confess and fight against sin in our own life and help other believers fight against sin in their lives, as James points out in verses 19 and 20. And listen, here's the good news. The good news is that where our righteousness fails, we have an advocate who is perfectly righteous, who is seated at the right hand of the Father and who intercedes for us. Our sin can hinder us from experiencing all that God has for us in prayer, but not just our sin, also our expectations. And I wish I had more time to unpack this, but I want to give us time in prayer. So let me just read this and make a few comments before I wrap us up. I think this is why James brings up Elijah. Because I think he knows that people... These are people, they're they're kind of suffering from some low expectations. And so he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And he says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. You can read about this in 1 Kings 17 and 18, where Elijah was a prophet during the reign of King Ahab, one of Israel's worst kings. And after years of just unfaithfulness and idolatry, Elijah proclaimed God is going to withhold rain. And God did it. Three and a half years, no rain. And then Elijah went up on a mountain. He put his face to the ground. He prayed for God and his mercy to send rain again. And he sent out his assistant 
It says, do you see rain clouds? The system went, came back, said, I don't see anything. A lot of us would have gave up. We'd have been like, this prayer thing doesn't work. This promise isn't true. Not Elijah. He goes in and he keeps praying and he sends his assistant out again and he does this seven times until all of a sudden the assistant sees a rain cloud the size of a man's fist. And as Elijah continues to persevere in prayer and to believe God, that rain cloud gets bigger and bigger and bigger until the cloud breaks and God begins to pour rain out and in this season of famine. Now, here's what you got to understand. James's point in bringing this up isn't that we can pray and expect God to give us whatever we pray for. We've already established that. Elijah's confidence in prayer was based on his confidence in God's word. And so 1 Kings 17 and 18 is based on the context of Deuteronomy 11, where Elijah knew God's word, where God said, when my people stray, I'm going to withhold the rain. And when they turn back to me, then I will pour out the rain again. Elijah knows God's word and he prays with confidence based on God's word. He makes God's word his prayer agenda. And some of us have such a weak spiritual life because we have such a small prayer life. And some of us lack confidence in our praying because our confidence is just based on our fickle desires instead of our prayers being based on and our prayer life being driven by the rock solid truth of God's promises in his word. Listen, some of us have heard this question before, but it's worth thinking about. If God answered all your prayers from the last seven days, would anything in the world change or just your world? Like, what are you asking God for? What are you believing him for? Let me end with this. Sam Aubrey gave a great illustration. Back in 2013, WestJet Airlines out of Canada ran a TV campaign where they filmed passengers showing up to the airport and there was this big screen with a virtual Santa and they would interact with Santa and Santa would ask them, what do you want for Christmas? And then they would, you know, say whatever they wanted for Christmas. What they didn't know was that while they were in the air, WestJet WestJet Airlines had shoppers in their destination city that would go to Best Buy and these different stores to buy whatever they told Santa they wanted. And when they showed up to, to baggage claim, all of these gifts were there that were the things that they asked for. And it was incredible. Big screen TVs, all this stuff was there. Now, here's what was sad. There was a man, and you can find this on YouTube. There's a video. It was an incredible advertisement and commercial. There was a man who told Santa he wanted socks and underwear. So he gets the baggage claim and everybody is getting, y'all, big screen TVs and ATVs and all this crazy stuff that they had the audacity to say they wanted for Christmas. And this man, because he didn't really take it seriously or maybe he wasn't paying attention or maybe he had low expectations or whatever, he decided to say, I just want some socks and some underwear. Listen, is that a picture of some of our prayer lives? 
where we've just settled for a self-centered, small prayer life when God has given us the privilege and power to come before him, to actually partner with him in bringing his will to fruition on earth. There's 3.2 billion people who don't have access to the gospel. And some of us are going to be called to go and, and most of us are going to be called in some way to give, but all of us are invited to pray for God to move into work. There are people around you who are sick and they need healing and you know the healer. There's people who have walked away from the faith or they're stuck in false religion. Your kids and people that you know and love and you have the power of God available to you in prayer to pray and ask God to, to open their eyes. Like God has invited us. And he's given us the power of prayer and this privilege to come before him. And yet our prayer lives can be so consumed with things that we think we want in the moment. Lift your eyes and realize that he's made you a son or daughter of God. He's made you a citizen of the kingdom of God, that he's given you prayer as a way of saying, God, I want to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so we pray. We pray to the God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask for or imagine. And I don't want us to just wait till January and 21 days of prayer. I want us to do it right now. And here's how we're going to do it. In light of this passage, we wanted to intentionally leave time for us to come before God in prayer today. And here's, here's what we're going to do. Number one. If you need healing from any kind of physical or emotional suffering, in just a minute, I'm going to invite you to come down front across all of our different locations so one of our pastors or leaders can pray for you. Here at Tyson's, we're going to have people on the sides here for you to receive prayer. Number two, if you're currently in a pattern of sin or struggling with any kind of addiction, this is going to be hard for some of us because it might feel embarrassing. But listen, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. When you humble yourself in confession, God will meet you there. So if you're struggling in a current pattern of sin or addiction, I want to invite you to do one of two things. If you're with someone you know or you see someone you know close by, I want to invite you to confess that to them and ask them to pray for you. Or if that's you, but you don't know anybody else here, you didn't come with anybody, then you can come down front here and at all of your locations or on the side of here in Tyson's, and one of our pastors or leaders will pray for you. Now, for everyone else, including those of you watching online or those of you that aren't going to come down, we're going to put some prayer prompts on the screen to help guide you in a time of personal prayer. And listen, here's what I do. I'd invite you, if there's space where you are, to just kneel as a sign of humility before God and just lift your requests to him, pour out your heart to him, or even at different locations, if you want to come down front and kneel before the Lord, I want to encourage you to do that. So I'm going to open us in prayer, and then after I say amen, you can come down front here or any of our locations to receive prayer, or you can just spend some time in personal prayer wherever you're sitting or wherever you're watching from. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the invitation you give us to come before you in prayer. 
Father, I pray, Lord, that you would meet us, that you would meet us, Lord God. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. We open our hearts, we open our lives, we open this time to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. You can come and receive prayer.